Hi, and welcome to The Horn. I'm Alan Boswell. Today's episode is in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, or FES. Today, we are focused on the upcoming COP27 in Egypt, as well as how to respond to increasing climate insecurity across the continent. For this discussion, we are joined by three panelists, Robert Muthami, a climate change policy expert working with FES, Hafsa Malim, an associate senior researcher at CIPRI, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, and a former African Union official, and Nazanin Moshiri, crisis group's expert on climate and security in Africa. Hi, Robert, Hafsa, Nazanin, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. So the reason we have you all here on this panel is, of course, we have COP coming up once again very shortly in November, and this year it is hosted in Egypt on the African continent, and we hope we will have a special focus on Africa this year. Robert, I want to start with you because you've been part of the Kenyan delegations to COP for for many years, um, and this year also. Briefly, what is the African position at COP and overall strategy? In a nutshell, what we're looking at is, one, the recognition of the African special needs and circumstances for Africa, the financing for loss and damage, which should be separate from the existing support for climate change adaptation and mitigation. Then the other aspect is doubling of climate finance, which should be predictable, be transparent, and it should be increased based on what we have at the moment. Of course, from the African continent, the aspect of the 100 billion US dollars has never been achieved. So the Africa group is looking at the delivery and the increase of the 100 billion amount up to around 150 billion US dollars per year until 2025. So the fulfillment of the pledges to the adaptation fund and the new pledges to respond to the increasing adaptation needs is a key priority for the African countries. What is the dynamic at the negotiations for the African group of negotiators and what has been the the main challenge in achieving the objectives that the African leaders have had at at past COPs? Yeah, very good question. One of the key challenges is that, of course, the mitigation goal is very clear, especially on what uh, the world needs to achieve towards the two degrees Celsius, the ambition that we have in the Paris Agreement. But the adaptation goal is not very clear. Mitigation relates to a cutting down of emissions and basically limiting greenhouse gas emissions, but adaptation relates to how countries cope with the impacts of climate change. And for the African continent, the adaptation is of key priority because Africa basically contributes less than 4% of the total greenhouse gas emissions. But the key priority for Africa is adaptation because Africa is highly impacted by climate change. And what we need is clarity on how to finance the adaptation needs from the African continent. And the challenge there is first unpacking the goal. We have held uh, discussions and workshops on how the adaptation goal should be implemented. We are not yet there, especially on the adaptation needs and the data on what needs to be financed from, from the African continent. That's a big challenge. The other challenge that we have is, of course, the international dynamics and the geopolitics. The countries in the global north much focusing on the Ukraine-Russian war, but of course, we have um, the challenging aspect of competing international crisis and the pri- where countries put put priority. So from the African continent, then it will help a lot if the global community focuses on addressing climate change. Then the other thing is also the differentiation within the African countries, especially the aspect to do with the least developed countries, countries like Malawi, Uganda, but we have other countries like Kenya, which in their middle economic countries, sometimes we see African countries in the least developed countries like the LDCs grouping together 
with other LDCs from the global community. And sometimes they take a mm. position that does not favor the other African countries. And mm. we see that as um, as a tactic to divide basically the solidarity that the African group should have, the support that the African group should have in advancing their interest in the COP negotiation. So what is required is for Africa to speak with one voice in the upcoming COP27, for the African Union through the Conference of African Heads of States on Climate Change, basically now chaired by Kenya, uh, to, to solidify the African voice through the different African organs, the African Union, the regional integration blocks, so that at least we speak with one voice in COP27 and of course advance the Africa's interest in COP27. Thanks, Robert. Hafsa, I know you've been working on these issues quite a bit also. How have African leaders so far tried to hold richer countries to account? What more could Africa do, do you think, to to bolster its case, maybe perhaps along the line of what Robert was discussing? The expectations or the demands, rather, that, that are being put forward by African leaders are very much one captured in some of the policy documents and the commitments that are emanating from Africa's multilateral platforms, whether it's the African Union or the regional economic communities as well. But there's also the the committee of the heads of states at the African Union level that has also been meeting regularly to have discussions around this and what African priorities and agenda around the climate security, you know, engagement should look like. Of course, there's the, you know, in, in every standard, whenever there's an issue of priority, you do have the African Union creating common positions. Uh, and in this regard, there is an African, you know, an African Union climate change strategy, uh, 2020, 2030, that also reflects in detail priorities when it comes to climate and its implications and, and more of what institutional policy responses should look like and, and galvanizing in, in a process, galvanizing political support. Now, in terms of, you know, the African leaders, I think political will has been, you know, quite a currency here. And I know these discussions where doubt is sort of thrown. I think Aspana in the works is usually thrown when you say African countries have sometimes distracted. There's a lot going on. You know, Robert did allude to the impact of COVID, the economic sort of crises. You're looking at conflict in some of these countries. So the question becomes, are they really distracted by all the, the layers of challenges that are going on? And the answer is no to that. I mean, we've heard all the African leaders' remarks, for example, at the UN General Assembly, all of them calling for enhanced engagement around this, especially heading into COP27, pushing, of course, as Robert has said, for adaptation, priorities for, for, for Africa. And, you know, also at a national level, we see these policies also being being pushed forward. And I can take an example of, of Kenya, for example, when the, during the new president's inauguration, top of the agenda were, you know, climate-related and climate priorities that were sort of being brought out as, as part of the policies that his administration are going to focus on. So in a sense, um, and in the technical side of it is covered, I think, but the political side of it is it's also coming out quite strong. And you saw the pre-COP negotiations also ongoing in Kinshasa, very much, again, amplifying, uh, you know, on a political platform, all the priorities that Robert had alluded to around adaptation and financing for loss and damage. So it's it's uh, there's a recognition, I would say, that these implications are are quite far-reaching. Of course, not just having economic impacts, but also you know impacting the conflict landscape on the African continent. And by extent, we are now the what, what what we're seeing more and more now, you know, when you're moving when you're looking more at the implications of climate is not just looking at the issues of climate as a development issue or 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 a humanitarian issue, but also human security issues. So a lot of climate and security discussions that are emanating on the policy landscape on the African continent. 
Thanks, Hafsa. Nazanin, just to perhaps wrap up this discussion, I'm wondering if you have anything to add about what we hope to see from COP and perhaps what could be done to to support the African positions. I think it's very important for African leaders to just focus on some of those key arguments, one of which Robert made about the fact that, you know, 11 African countries are going to face climate adaptation costs higher than their national spend on healthcare, huge amounts of their GDP. And also the fact that Africa already makes a huge contribution through its global carbon sinks. For example, in the DR Congo, the wetlands, the forests there are basically removing more carbon from the atmosphere than cities, towns and villages across the continent put in. I think those are really important arguments. One more point I would make is that Africa also at COP needs to find allies there, allies for example, in the Caribbean region and the Pacific Islands, where they are facing similar problems, similar issues. At the end of the day, I would say that you know numbers matter at COP. It's important to make those key allies to be able to push Africa's position. I think numbers like Nazanin says is very important. From COP26, of course, there was a challenge in terms of access to the different negotiating rooms. I think uh, most of the civil society organizations, trade unions could not access um, some of the rooms. That limited especially the level of engagement and how different groups could influence the negotiations. In the upcoming COP in 27, I think uh, the key ask is ensuring that at least civil society organizations, trade unions have some level of access or increased access uh, to the negotiation rooms so that they can also listen in, engage with their key delegations from the various countries, influence the country positions and also the different standpoints based on the different agenda items during the negotiations. The other challenging bit that we also observe is around um ensuring that African groups engage and also meet their delegations during the different the, the different negotiating attempts. And I think there, there needs to be consultations even during the COP, especially on where different groups need to fit into in the upcoming COP. Uh, the other important aspect is the CPIC space, especially for Egypt and the provision for civil society organizations, trade unions and other non-state actors to even have stands, have space to share their key messages through peaceful demonstrations like they do in the previous COPs, I think that is a key ask that I've had even from the CSOs that they need to be provided with and the security ensure that their message is, is heard clearly on different agenda items in their upcoming COP27. Thanks. Thanks, Robert. As Hafsa mentioned, uh, there's obviously a human security element of this, which uh, Crisis Group is among many others trying to bring more attention in the in the climate conversation to the human security element and what can be done. Um, Hafsa, I just wondered if you wanted to expound upon that a bit in terms of what we are learning um, and what the African Union and, and African leaders are, are focused on in terms of how climate change is, is affecting human security across the continent. I think the Climate and, you know, security discourse is something that is gaining traction more and more. Calling climate security implications a human security issue is not a contentious term on the African continent. And that in itself, I think, is progress. And of course, you know, I need not explain to you the importance of nomenclature when it comes to policy making. And so the recognition, you know, or, or the use of the term human security has then permitted, uh, you know, the policy and political decision making platforms such as the African Union 
to deliberate this issue, but also to be able to create policies that are able to then support implementation and responses when it comes to, you know, related risks, whether it is, you know, climate-induced displacement or, you know, food insecurity issues or water scarcity or disaster risk responses and management. And so these are all they're, they're a starting point, I would say, in, in trying to have this conversation on climate and its implications being looked at beyond a development lens. And I think what then that does is it allows for us, on the one hand, to be able to also create a, a different sort of avenue for trying to mobilize financing for responding to climate-related issues. And I think this is a big thing Robert has been speaking a lot about, countries that are spending 10% of their GDP in adaptation. So I think the, the, the creativity, and I'm careful about using this term, is how do we make sure that we try to get other avenues of, you know, of, of funding to respond to some of these challenges. And one of them is that recognition that this is a human security issue that then needs to be deliberated at the highest echelons of you know, policy engagement at the UN Security Council, at the AU Peace and Security Council as a start, and then use those platforms to be able to then have some sort of responses. Thanks, Hafsa. Nazin, I think now's a good time. You're spearheading research and crisis group on how the climate disasters are sort of overlapping and acting as a, as another compounding driver in some of the conflicts in the region. I'm just wondering if you can just summarize quickly what we know about how climate and conflicts are overlapping right now in the region. Sure. I mean, we know that the relationship between climate change and violent conflict is complex. It's very context-specific. And this comes from you know, our in-depth research that we've conducted, but also from, from many years of research in, into this topic. But what's undeniable is that these climate stresses are a threat multiplier. So what does that mean? It means that they're already increasing food insecurity. We can see that in the horn right now. Water scarcity, resource competition, disrupting livelihoods. You know, we've got more than 7 million livestock who, which have been killed because of lack of food and water during this ongoing, prolonged, historic drought in the region uh, at the moment. And also, you know, we can see the links through, through migration, people moving because they're searching for resources or in the way they're, they're fleeing conflict too. So in turn, we can also see you know, the deadly conflict in the region, political instability, are also contributing to climate change. We've seen that, for example, through, through deforestation, through illegal logging in, in some parts of the world. But certainly from our research here in, in the Horn of Africa, I think the stakes couldn't be any higher. We've seen that climate change has intensified the drought, um, floods in South Sudan, for example, uh, where we see the Niles uh, increasingly erratic and extreme flooding, driving herders south into Equatoria region. And we've seen that communal frictions there and the risk of violence has increased. And in Somalia, the state at the moment is battling Al-Shabaab, but climate change is risking further destabilization because the group is able to expand its influence by you know, taking control of water points, for example, or conversely, using drought as a punishment against populations who rise up against it by destroying water points or poisoning water wells um, in these drought-stricken rural areas of the country. And I just want to say, in terms of what Hafsa was saying, in terms of uh, COP um, and 
looking at whether you know climate security will be on the agenda. It hasn't been on the agenda up until now, and I don't think it will be on the agenda this time round. But I think the point that we would like to make at Crisis Group, and I think it's an important point, is that even if it's not at the top of the official agenda, it doesn't mean that the negotiators can't take into account these conflict dynamics in their talks about adaptation, for example, climate financing. It's hard to imagine, for example, encouraging sustainable agriculture, slowing deforestation, for example, without dealing with the conflicts that affect so many of the countries that are impacted by climate change. So I think it's still important to bring in the, the, the question of how these issues over climate and conflict overlap into the discussions and thread them through as much as possible. Thanks. Uh- Robert, I'm just wondering why you think it has been difficult to get uh, the the human security element, the the relation between climate and conflict higher on the agenda at these negotiations. One way in which we can find the climate security aspects within uh, the climate change negotiations is one linking um, climate change and security towards adaptation and loss and damage mechanisms. We can have a pathway of trying to finance some of those climate security dynamics through the Adaptation Fund or the the Green Climate Fund or the other existing bilateral or multilateral financing. The national adaptation plans that different countries like Kenya, Uganda, and the rest in the African countries have submitted to the UNFPC, they have uh, strong components, especially on the adaptation needs from the African continent on, or and from the specific countries, as well as the loss and damage specific needs from those particular countries. We could have some pathways of ensuring that we include climate change and security dynamics and that particular interlinkage in those national, uh, uh, national adaptation plans. Just listening to Robert, the technicalities that sort of come up when it comes to, you know, global negotiations in itself is part of the challenge, you know, when it comes to trying to further any sort of policies that can be able to be of use and can later be used to to be, you know, domesticated and, and, and sort of implemented in, in a way that could then result in some tangible, you know, programming. So. I say this looking at the engagements, for example, at, at the UN Security Council and the UN, you know, um, the, the, the COP level discussions. And the recognition here is that we already have, you know, an understanding and Nazarene captured the, the risks and the threats and the interlinkages between climate and conflict quite well. But the largest gap that we have is our policies in responding to climate change, the policies, you know, crafted that are responding to developmental issues and to security issues are not necessarily interlinked. They're not, um, you know, holistically responsive to some of the issues that we know are actually very much, you know, attached. And I I just wanted to give an example here. I mean, if I may. Um, you know, in a in a recent uh, you know report, I think a SIPRI report on food security in Africa, talking about a dynamic in Borno State in Nigeria, for example, where you have about you know a few million people who have been displaced due to climatic shocks and conflict. What what has then happened is that it has increased the tensions between the host community and the the local community. And what has then happened because it is then threatening the livelihoods. It's it's created intense resource competition between the two the two communities. Is that you have the host communities that are now turning to radical groups uh, in the area uh, for protection, to protect their, you know, their livelihoods, but to also protect uh, their way of living. And so this, then these radical groups are then taking advantage of, of, of these sort of vulnerabilities, the community's vulnerabilities. And this is a very uh, micro level, perhaps, example. But just to tell you that 
in a normal setting, if you're looking at this from a security point, what would happen is you would want to create an entire program, PVE program, you know, preventing violent extremism program, for example. But in essence, what you would need to do is then create a peace building program, a stabilization program that also seeks to provide some sense of food security, creative livelihood options, so adaptation options, right? So that in itself, that recognition at that level should also tell us that our policies need to also be equally linked. So going into COP and wanting to come out with something concrete that would be able to be of benefit to the African continent, then we have no option but to ensure that this conversation on, you know, responses to climate change are also speaking to the, you know, security implications and the developmental implications all around. I think this is this is sort of what um, I would push for. Um, recognizing, of course, that there are some technical challenges and how this can be brought up at COP. I just wanted to respond on a couple of points there. I think it's really important when we're talking about climate adaptation funds that we also think about changing the system to enable fragile communities to reach those funds. Our research has shown that countries experiencing conflict and crisis receive about a third the amount of climate finance for adaptation um, than countries at peace. And the fact that violence and war makes climate adaptation obviously more expensive and difficult should not be a hindering factor. I mean, just as we see governments and organisations providing humanitarian aid, for example, in emergency situations, I really think that there should be climate emergency aid as well. Thanks, Nazni. That's a very important point. As you say, we know that adaptation funding is is basically failing to find its way in anything to the share it should be to conflict-afflicted countries. I'm just wondering, Hafsa or Robert, if either of you have, have anything to, to say on that also. I would say that from where I sit and the complexity with bringing the, 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 the climate security issue within the negotiations, I think one is first to understand that the resources that are required for climate change adaptation are not flowing as expected. And I think when we bring the climate security dynamics within the climate change conversation, it speaks a lot in upscaling the financing because um, conflicts, climate change bring another dynamics within the whole issue. So I think we need to, there needs to be a political goodwill to advance the climate security issue within the political space, be it within the African governments or the global community. But of course, the essence of uh, ensuring that there is that linkage of climate security within the different negotiating items in the climate change negotiations that could ensure that climate security becomes a key issue around the, negotiate, the negotiating items, for example, in the adaptation elements. But of course, I think at some point there needs to be a convergence between the UNFCCC and the UN Security Council on what the two negotiating or the two UN bodies are focusing on on, on that particular agenda item. And now, for example, we can advance the aspect of climate security both in the UN Security Council and the UNFCCC and which UN body which UN body could address which particular issue, and especially around the financing aspect, then what could the UNFCCC be focusing on and what the, could the UN Security Council be focusing on? Because it seems that there is a problem in terms of trying to find somewhere where the climate security aspect could settle in within the UN, UN, UN circles. Just to add on to what Robert has said, I think is we need to amplify this conversation by adding components of data. So early warning becomes very important, but not just early warning, but 
integrated early warning, looking at the, you know, conflict monitoring systems, you know, and the disaster risk response systems and the extent to which they can be able to speak to each other. The importance of this, you know, integrated early warning systems is it then allows us to create, you know, a, a very visual, detailed visuals as to what the linkages between climate and violent conflict actually is. And we can provide context-specific analysis. If you look at some of the communiques, for example, that are emanating from the AU Peace and Security Council, you know, the policy discussion is not much of a big issue, but what they're calling for is data-driven analysis to provide a more holistic p- picture and what exactly these links are so that they can also be, you know, interlinked responses. And this is the most important part is we need to have interlinked policy responses. We need to have interlinked programmatic responses. And in in terms of the UNF, you know, Triple C and uh, and the and the Security Council sort of you know division of labor, perhaps is a recognition that the, the, the UN Security Council does have a mandate to discuss threats to you know global security and climate change in itself is a threat. However, of course, you know previous vetoes against you know tabled resolutions touching on climate security you know tell us a lot about geopolitics and the dynamics that you know that, that are playing out in the Security Council and how it's hindering the progression of the climate security agenda at the UN Security Council level. So perhaps just to you know, add an extra sort of thinking here is if there is, there doesn't seem to be a convergence between these two bodies, do we need another policy platform that can be able to address climate security issues? Not that I have an answer, but maybe this is where we need to have this conversation. If the division of labor seems to be, you know, not a soft line, but a hard line, but this is still an important issue to raise. And I think maybe perhaps Nazanin with her research can be able to also shed, you know, shed some light on this. Nazneen, I'm going to let you respond here. Uh, just to say that in terms of the early warning, Hafsa, it's a very important point. Um, and of course, uh, EGAD, the regional Horn of Africa body, has a sophisticated um, climate projection body as well as uh, early warning body through Seawarn. And just, just to highlight that one of the things we found is that one of the key gaps, if not the main key gap, is that the data then given to the regional countries, the, the member states often lack the capacity or simply don't know how or what to do with the data they are given. Just to answer your point on um, early warning, we have to recognize that EGAD has a very sophisticated system, but there definitely needs to be more cooperation, data sharing, and also getting those early warning messages and key information to people at risk on the ground. So via radio, text messages, that kind of thing needs to become the norm. I also just wanted to ask you, how do we prevent the richer countries essentially rehatting existing emergency aid as climate adaptation funding in the future? Um, I think in terms of how to spend the money that comes in for you know humanitarian aid and how it could be also spent on adaptation, I think there's no doubt we all agree that then we need more money. So we need more donor funding. But also I think it's important that we also encourage better governance because we have to make sure that that money is appropriately spent in projects that are feasible, in projects where there's local ownership and local partnership. So strengthening local governance, I think, is is really important in that sense. And, and there are just many, many examples of how you know, spending money on adaptation could assist not just the humanitarian situation, but also build resilience. I can just give you one example in the context of the Horn, where developing basically a plan 
to improve livelihoods of pastoralist communities who've been badly affected by, by drought, promoting sustainable livestock management practices, for example, um, and allowing them to, to move in the region, allowing transhumans, that's what, what, what we mean about pastoralists, when we say pastoralists moving across borders to access pasture and water. And that kind of has a, a political angle and element because you know we want to do this through member states of EGAD but clearly it would assist people who are suffering from water scarcity, pasture scarcity and it would mitigate the potential for, for clashes that we see or violent clashes between herders and herders, between herders and farmers that we that we see when these climate shocks turn into really devastating droughts and also floods. Robert, do you have any thoughts on how we update, you know, these peace-building practices in the age of climate insecurity? It's clear that communities understand the climate security dynamics or climate change fits into the whole peace-building aspect. But one of the challenges is it's, it's, it's the technical capacity of the communities. Having someone who understands climate change is, is, is a gap. And one of the things that could solve this aspect is, is like trying to have a climate change legate or someone who, are, who understands the climate climate change issues quite well, being part of the peace building process. So that at least there is an aspect of ensuring that the, the peace building issues or the conflict issues that communities come up with, there is an aspect of trying to link them to the climate change based on the context that we are referring to. So one of the key issues that could be looked at is trying to have a climate change legate or someone who understands a climate change in those peace building efforts and ensuring that at least a peace agreement of our peace building effort includes the climate change based on the local mechanism and that could address climate local climate security mechanisms at the local level for having a comprehensive peace building initiative that in, includes climate security mechanisms. Uh, and, and a good example, I mean, it's good to recognize, you know, good be- good practices or best practices. And I think with this, I want to refer to what the UN climate security mechanism is doing. One of the things that they've done is embed a climate peace building expert, a climate expert into the peacekeeping and peace building missions, for example, in Somalia. And they're now collecting data that, that is looking at what the engagement on peace and security and climate looks like. And this is also feeding into the annual report, or not, not the annual, the regular reporting, my apologies, that is emanating from the mission to the UN Security Council. And this is informing policies around how best to respond to security issues that could also be or are you know, impacted by the climate change agenda. So I think this closely ties with the work that we're doing at the Horn of Africa Working Group on Climate Security. But second is then to also have, you know, I would say international community support around government priorities, so national priorities that are being being identified, but also responding to some of the already existing programming. I mean, we, we keep referring to IGAD because it really is a best case study here in terms of how, you know, IGPAC, for example, responds, responds to some of these issues. But lastly, I would say specifically when it comes to the linkages on climate and conflict, then is the fact that we just do not have enough data that speaks to these issues, the interlinked nature of these issues. And therefore, it's becoming more challenging for us to provide solutions, you know, at at a local level, despite the fact that, you know, evidence of this actually exists on the ground. So there's still a need to invest in data tools there that still speak to each other. So that system in itself still needs to be developed, still needs to be invested in. And there's still a lot to be done around that particular area. 
Thanks, Hafsa. And Nazneen, I'm going to give you the the final word. Obviously, the Horn of Africa, especially, is you know very much on the on the front lines of this. And I think we're in a situation where even as climate disasters are hitting, we're sort of struggling to keep up in real time with with with, with real data on what the best ways are to respond, how to respond. And of course, we're in a geopolitical environment that's been well discussed in which essentially the rich countries aren't coming forward with the with the money promised and the money that's needed. And we're in a political situation where the countries in the region are themselves are facing many challenges and and in some cases will really struggle to 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 implement the sort of climate adaptation measures needed. So so in this context where should everyone, you know, perhaps be focusing most on? Yeah, I think early warning is key as we've mentioned here, but we need to be able to translate that early warning into early action through through various means. One of the one of the things and one of the points I would like to make is that we we look at peace building, we look at, you know, preventing conflict. And generally these these issues take time. You know, we have to build trust, collaboration, et cetera, to tackle these these challenging issues. But the, the problem that we have with what we're seeing in terms of the worst impacts of climate change is that that, that time is running out. And it climate change could outpace the amount of time it takes to build the responses that we need. So we need to learn lessons. We need to learn those lessons quickly. We need to learn lessons from speaking with humanitarian agencies who are operating in conflict zones. How can we adopt their best practices and basically provide climate resilience, climate adaptation in those areas? Perhaps we need to make climate part of a solution in trying to resolve conflict, possibly Climate could be a way into discussions, a topic that's seen as a less political entry point. One diplomat recently told me that that's their thinking in terms of what's happening in Ethiopia and the Tigray conflict. And there could be potential for that as well. I think generally, it's very important to try to think about climate before we get to insecurity, to try to head off head off those problems. It's going to be very difficult, but extremely important, particularly in the context of what we're seeing right now in the Horn. Thanks for listening. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell, and the Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. This episode was in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation and was produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. 